What is up, gorgeous people? Welcome back to the James Kennedy Podcast. I hope you're all awesome. I got a great one lined up for you guys today. A chat that I've been looking forward to having for a really long time. I've been chasing this guy for ages and I finally managed to nail him down. But before we get down to business, have you subscribed to the podcast? I know this is like a really boring preamble that I do literally every single time now, but I'm going to keep doing it until every single last one of you has hit the damn subscribe button, hit the star rating button and left a goddamn review. I mean, come on. I'm good to you guys. Get on it. Okay, so that's the nagging out of the way. Today's guest, we are talking about the state of live music venues in this country. As I'm sure all of you know by now, iconic, legendary, awesome grassroots music venues that have been the host to so many iconic bands are closing down left, right and center and have been for, for many, many years now. And it's such a shame and such a travesty. I want to get into why that is what the root cause of it all is and what the hell we can do to stop it because we cannot lose that institution. This country is top of the league in producing awesome, awesome music and artists and bands. And the small grassroots local venue is the place where that happens. That is the, that is the nurturing ground that produces the iconic bands that this country is famous for. So I want to get into what is happening out there and what the hell can we do to stop the rot. So with me today is Mark David. Now, Mark David is the CEO of the Music Venue Trust, a charity that represents hundreds of small and medium-sized live music venues across the UK, and he is also a tireless campaigner for the protection of our grassroots music circuit. I've spent much of my life performing in these venues, so it's an issue that is really close to my heart, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the podcast today, Mr. Mark David. How are you, sir? Very well, James. Hell of an introduction there. Thank you very much. <laughs> I know, I get a bit carried away sometimes. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being with us, man. I really do appreciate your time. Uh, I've got loads I want to ask you today, but I thought before I, I get carried away and excited and, and you know, lead us astray, um, how, could we start by setting the stage here for people who haven't had the background in this that we have or the experience in this world that we have um, as to what is the current state of play on the grassroots live venue circuit in this country at present? Um, it's kind of complex, really, because obviously coming out of the pandemic, it's great to see them all reopen. Um, there's an enormous amount of activity taking place in them. We've not only got 2022's tours and, you know, events, but we've also picking up reschedules, cancellations from the last two years. So most of them are open probably more than they ever have been, you know, whereas they might have been open four or five nights a week. They're now open six or seven. Wow. Um, but um, it's not without its challenges. We're still seeing a huge number of cancellations. We're seeing tail, tail off from ticket bookings. We're seeing... Um, obviously the cost of living crisis is now starting to hit people and frankly just the sheer amount of stuff that's out there is causing some problems with you know attendance at each show so uh, overall it's got its positives and negatives I think the big thing to talk about really is that from the pandemic this sector has acquired just over 100 million pounds in new debt Mm. and that this is not a sector that can really manage that very well it doesn't have huge finances to back it up so it is going to be it isn't over because it's going to take three to four years for them to recover my feeling on this was that you know things were pretty bad before covid i mean it was before covid i was seeing some of my favorite venues sort of closing down you know on quite a frequent basis so what is the what's the root cause of this is it just a change in how people consume music now or is it to do with you know the cost of keeping these venues open to do with you know the the peripheral costs such as you know beer taxes and things like that or rents or, or gentrification or is it a mixture of things because uh, this is be this is not just a, a covid era problem is it this, this is going back quite a way now this has been happening yeah i mean it's been going on for really the last certainly the last 20 years i mean in the period 2008 to 2015 35 percent of these venues trading venues closed down we, we ended up with 35 percent less you know some people open a few venues but even more closed um I think it's easy to describe it in two levels, really. The easy to understand level is the sort of thing that people react to in social media and that people feel really angry about and they respond to. And that would be venues being closed by noise complaints, venues being closed by gentrification, venues being kicked out by a landlord, 
you know, these kind of things are easy to get angry about mm. and, and they result in petitions and they, you know, <laughs> they feel good while you're being angry about them and yeah. sometimes you can solve them. But underlying all of that is a much more serious issue, which is the economics of running a music venue haven't really been addressed in the last, frankly, 25 years. And those economics have radically changed. Um, and we haven't really addressed what a modern grassroots music venue needs to look like in order to withstand those pressures. And key amongst that, and really underpinning so much of the rest of the things that's going on is about the ownership of the buildings. 93% of these venues are tenants. They have a private landlord, either a, a, a private individual or a commercial company that wants to make money from the building. And it doesn't take much to realize that what do those, what do those landlords want? They want a nice, quiet tenant who's got lots of money. That's literally the description of the opposite of a grassroots music venue. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're a noisy tenant that's struggling to get by, most of them operating in a kind of quasi-not-for-profit manner. Yeah. You know, and, and everybody that's doing it is doing the same thing. You know, we've, we've got venue operators who are not making a profit. We've got artists playing them that are currently not making a profit yeah. and may never make a profit. But we've allowed them to exist in this commercial space where their landlords, for perfectly justifiable reasons, want to make money out of the property they own. And we have to address that. That then leads us to address lots of other things. We, we, we like to talk about something called the grassroots pound. And that's our analysis of when you hand over a pound at the door of one of these venues for a ticket to see your favorite artist or see a new band you might get into, how much of that pound is actually ending up in the hands of either the artist or the crew, or the people who put the event together? And the answer is that once you take out very badly thought through taxation of VAT or whatever else it is, business rates and rent, even just those three things have taken out about 42 pence in every pound. Wow. So when people ask me, well, you know, James, you, you played these venues, you know, you'll know the fees for playing these venues are still frighteningly low. I, yeah. I first promoted in one of these venues, believe it or not, 36 years ago now. On the night I promoted the first band I ever promoted, I paid the support band 50 pounds. 36 years later, we're still paying them 50 pounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and why is that? It's because the... The, the essential economics of that grassroots pound have not been looked at properly. We haven't said, where is the money going? And is it going to the right people for the right things? And, I, and who hasn't looked at that? I, I, I mean, everybody, frankly. You know, music industry hasn't looked at it properly. What are they doing about making sure we're not paying out private landlords? What are they doing to own our venues? Mm. What is government doing about taxation? Why are we, why is, we have the highest rate of VAT on grassroots ticking thing anywhere in the world. Wow. We're supposed to be a music nation and we yeah. tax the research and development of our new artists higher than any other country in the world. That's just stunning, really, when you look at it that way. And business rates, well, you know, these, <laughs> I like to call this the kebab question. I've eaten a lot of kebabs. <laughs> Why have I eaten a lot of kebabs? Because I go to a lot of gigs and when I fall out of the gig at about 11, 11.30, I'm hungry and I go to a kebab shop. Okay. Have I ever left my house at 11.30 to go and buy a kebab? No, right. that's never happened. Yeah. Right? So why do you want these type of venues, what we call destination venues, why do you want them in our communities? Because they drive other economic activity. Mm. Every £10 spent on a ticket in a grassroots music venue, £17 is spent elsewhere in the nighttime economy. Right. So if you've got a show that's taking a couple of thousand pounds in tickets, £3,400 in economic activity is being spent elsewhere in bars, restaurants, transport, in the rest of the economy, in the pubs and bars surrounding that thing, on taxis, on kebab shops. You know, how do you keep the nighttime economy running? You give people reasons to go out. So, why do local authorities charge music venues excessive business rates and late night levies? for encouraging people to come out into the economies that they need them to use. Mm. It doesn't make any sense.
You know, and on that ownership issue, we're, we're currently launching a big program we call Own Our Venues, which is to change that ownership model and to finally put the music community in charge of the freeholds of these venues, not to run the buildings, but just to prevent that money from leaking out of the system when it could be going to artists, to crew, to venue operators, to production crew. You know, that's where it belongs. That's what you gave it at the door for. Well, I yeah, I want to get into all of the um, the ways to fix this as well because it's fascinating stuff. Um, I, I wanted one of the things that I've always wondered as well is that having sort of been a participant in these venues and also some performing in them, you know, quite intensely for the past twenty years. I've personally noticed, I'm not sure if it's just my own band, <laughs> but I've personally noticed a drop in attendance across the board. Does that play a role in this? Is that, is that universal or, you know, is that just my own experience? Um, it, you know what, it's difficult to gauge because it goes in waves and patterns. What we can say is that the decline in the number of music venues um, and is not actually mapped to any kind of perceived decline in the number of attendees. Right. So actually, you know, sometimes you see swathes of music venues being closed down by gentrification or development in a particular city or in a region or, you know, for whatever reason. And at that time, we may have a lot of bands out that are attracting a lot of people. So the two things are not very close to line. Has there been a downturn in the number of people going to live music? No. Right. There's actually been an upturn in the number of people going to live music. Mm. However, in that 20-year period, how much of the live music that they're going to see is now taking place in other locations? Got you. And particularly, I would look at festivals. Mm. Um, you know, when I, when I started in this industry, I think there were approximately eight <laughs> festivals, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> you know, that had any kind of serious music content. I, I don't actually even know how many there are now, but I suspect there are more than a thousand. Mm. And I, I think the total spend on music continues, live music particularly, continues to increase. And live music is still the number, well, music is the number one cultural decision that young people continue to make, however they choose to make that decision. So is the audience there? Yeah, I suspect it is. Are they particularly tied into going to grassroots music venues to see new and emerging bands. There's a, wow, that's a, that's a great social question. Yeah. Well, something that I observed when I first started gigging back in the early two thousands and onwards, um, was when we first started gigging on the circuit in these very venues, it still very much felt like there was an old school kind of scene, you know, it had that vibe about it. And then as the industry started to go south and started to experience problems as a result of the introduction of digital and all that sort of stuff, um, you know, all the, all the things that we know about, um, I noticed there was a change in the vibe, like promoters started doing this thing whereby instead of curating a night a bill of, of good bands that all complemented each other musically and were part of building that scene. Um, they would just chuck on a ragtag <laughs> you know, as assembly of bands that had nothing in common with each other at all musically, um, apart from the fact that they could promise to shift X amount of tickets. Mm. And it became very much a kind of, uh, it just lost the soul of it all. You know, you, like people would come along to a gig and have to sit through seven bands that had nothing to do musically with the, the, the only one band they came to see, which was their mate's band, you know, because you know, their mate's band had to only got the gig because they promised that they'd bring a busload of their uni friends in or something. And uh, it was around that time that I, I, it, it felt differently it felt different as a, as a band performing on that because you did very much feel feel like it was just a conveyor belt, you know, industrial kind of money making thing for a struggling venue. But I also noticed that that was seemed to be felt in the audiences as well. Like the audiences were thinning out more and more and more, and then you start to see the venues closing their doors. And I just felt that maybe it was a reaction to that. And I'm sure I'm probably wrong because, as you know, as you're alluding to, people clearly still love to see live music and people still do pay lots of money and queue for hours to go and see live music. I mean, Ed Sheeran brought, you know, my capital city of Cardiff down to a fucking standstill for three days last weekend. Um, you know, so people are clearly happy to spend the money and queue and, you know, pay 10 bucks for a beer and things like that to go and see the music that they want to see. So in terms of the, the grassroots, smaller local venues putting on original bands, does, does audience attendance play a part in this? Is, is attendance 
a factor in this, in keeping the venue's doors open, or am I completely <laughs> way off guard? Well, the, the great thing about your podcast, James, is that we can have an incredibly free-ranging and free-wheeling discussion of yep. all the reasons why that might be. You know, in, in that 20-year period, well, let's let's just revisit that. The underlying point here is that, that people are forced to make, venue operators and promoters are forced to make commercial decisions that we don't really want them to make. How do we generate great new bands, great talent that we're frankly world famous for, you know, from, from Wales or from the whole of Britain? We're famous for producing brilliant new bands, but a lot of them really unexpected. How does that happen? Well, it happens because the band takes a risk of going out. The venue operator takes a risk of putting them on. People take a risk of going and seeing them. Yeah. If you place these external, you know, that underlying thing I talked about, that grassroots pound, if you reduce the available money to the point where people have to start not taking risks, they have to just go for the, the band that can say, we're definitely going to be 70 of our friends. I agree with you. It kind of destroys it, there's nothing worse than being in a room where, you know, a fantastic new act that you've never seen before is performing in front of 150 people who are waiting to see five other bands that have just got 30 mates each. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that doesn't work. What we really want is risk-taking and everything else. But then alongside that underlying thing, you know, in that kind of freewheeling debate idea, there's a huge other bunch of other things that have happened, you know, like I, 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 we do a lot of work on this and, and the impact of student loans on the behavior of students and the kind of decision making they make mm. isn't really factored into why aren't students choosing to go to as many gigs as they did before. The collapse of student union bars mm. putting on live music. That's related to that student loans, but it's also related to the funding of universities and how much money they had to employ people to do that kind of thing. Then you've got, believe it or not, the smoking ban. Yeah, oh, yeah. You know that actually that changed the pattern of behaviour within venues, and and made people leave and do different. You know what I mean? So there's there's all these kind of factors in society. The one thing that we can be confident on, because it, it comes up in every survey ever done, is that the first independent autonomous decision that most young people make still relates to music mm. that's that's the number one thing that they define themselves individually by there's another thing happening in society which is quite interesting for me and probably for you as well because i think your experience of music is similar to mine in the era i grew up with well certainly in my particular era i knew i was a teenage mod and that I didn't like people who liked heavy metal, <laughs> you know. And and then later on, I decided that I really liked heavy metal, and that meant that I didn't like pop music. Yeah. And and I think there is this kind of very weird contagion, which is I, I think is positive in some ways for the sound of music. There's lots of interesting music being made that you wouldn't ever have heard before, but then isn't very good for that kind of tribal instinct like this is our band yes you know having said that i would say that right now there is a an incredible new sound coming out of these venues epitomized by not one genre but a kind of really mashed up approach to music which is kind of sounding uniquely british and i pick out people like bob villain mm. and nova twins oh yeah um, and benefits that I saw recently, there's a kind of there's an uh, it's quite difficult to define it as being one thing, but there is a really excitement. There's an excitement around those bands, and and you know Bob Villanter is selling out absolutely everywhere. Nova Twins, you know, and they're selling every ticket. Benefits have suddenly lifted up. Yard Act, you know that that act is suddenly selling out everywhere. There's a huge enthusiasm for that, and that is coming out of the grassroots venues. Right. Does it have the same kind of tribal um, element that you and me perhaps were more familiar with? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I saw Yardak play at the Brutal Social Club, and four songs in, the entire crowd started chanting Yorkshire, Yorkshire. <laughs> so I guess that's quite tribal. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. That's a, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that before. That's, that's a really interesting point to make, actually, because, yeah, I mean, for me growing up as a teenager, you know, like 
music was the sole thing I identified myself by. And it's that kind of that gang that you're a part of, like you say, whether you're a mod or a metaler or, you know, an indie guy or a progger, you know, like that was very much my thing. And it still very much is to this day. I mean, I identify myself as a musician and by the music that I listen to and, and therefore by the sort of the club that I attach myself to. It's my identity, you know. So that's very interesting that you, the, the point you make about the difference of the the sort of emerging acts these days that they don't tend to be attached to any broader tribal association which is which which i think is awesome in many ways because there probably is a tribal association but it's not one that we would recognize perhaps in in the same sense that it used to be back in the day you know yeah i think i mean you know is this gets i mean there are there are so many little factors and and I think actually one of the things I would say is that it's quite easy to become overly focused on any any like minor one of them. And, and that's certainly in the music industry, there is an inclination to try and solve, a, a, you know, what looks like a simple solvable issue and not to talk about, which I think is where we, we come from. We want to talk about the long-term strategic point, you know, what what is happening to music? What does that mean in the years to come? How can we control that in a way that's more beneficial to the future of British music and to the future of eyes? And we quite often run up against individual single campaigns that are very worthy in themselves. Yeah. I mean, I'll pick out, you know, right now, a lot of artists are very, very, um, not, uh, what are they? they're, they're very vexed, vexatious, I don't know, about <laughs> the merch, the merch charges. Right. No, that actually, and I think they're right. Yeah, I, you know, my my personal view, not the view of every venue that we represent. My personal view is, ideally, hundred percent of all merch sold in a venue should go to the artist that's that's playing. I, I, I think agree. Everybody yeah. kind of thinks that. Yeah. The but, we, and I want to tackle that. And in fact, within ours, we're 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 partners to the Fitch Nights Coalition, hundred percent venues, which is a list of venues that don't charge merch fees, and, and most of our members are on it. But is that really why artists can't earn a living? And and the answer to that is no, it isn't. There's, you know, I would, if an artist is being paid as a support act 50 quid, managing to sell five T-shirts, that isn't going to solve the fact that they were being paid 50 quid. No. It's important to solve these issues, but we tend to get obsessed by these small things and we don't really take a long-term view. What do we need these venues to do? For no reason I can understand the ideal venue operator is going to put on five people wearing the weirdest outfits you've ever seen, playing Tibetan nose flute, <laughs> making mostly white noise, and nobody will know why, but that will increase the cultural envelope of what music is being presented. And somebody will hear that and will be inspired to create the next Ed Sheeran or Adele or yeah. Beatles or Coldplay or whoever it is you want to name. You know, little, little things that they'll hear something in that that will inspire them to to go somewhere else. Have we created the conditions where somebody can put on my ideal wackily dressed five piece no, nose flute orchestra? No, we haven't. We've created the atmosphere where the ideal act put on a grassroots music venue is a tribute to ABBA. Got you. Yeah. Yeah, you're bang on. Yeah, brilliantly put as well, man. Yeah, I'm in agreement with everything you're saying. And it's throwing up so many more questions as well. I'm scribbling down as you're talking. Um, before we come on to solutions then, because I'm fascinated by, by your approach to that. Could we just, I mean, I don't think we need to lay this out for anyone that's going to be listening to this, I don't think. But just to really hammer this point home, why is this important? Why is it important to protect these venues? Uh, well, I mean, for me, it's, it's personally important to me because this is where I grew up. This has been my entire life. I, and I'm, I'm sure many people listening to this will feel the same way. That venue is is your social life. It's your point of interaction. It's your, frankly, it's your identity. My, you know, my, my music venue in Tunbridge Wells is responsible for me being as completely, I play hours of music every day. The people I talk to are all into music. For most of most of probably the people listening to this podcast, music is our thing. Yeah. Where where do we get that inspiration? Where do we find that aspirational lifestyle? Where do we become those people? And that's absolutely absolutely because music is around you. You know, we we did a thing a little while ago. There's there's somebody who lives in West Wales who's 
three hours and 50 minutes from their nearest live music experience on public transport. Oh, sure. That's not good enough. No. But that person is not going to pick up a guitar. They're not going to get into music. So that's why it's important to me. Why is it important to everybody else? Well, I did the kebab bit earlier, you know, saying, why do people go out at night? The amount of jobs that revolve around this initial activity, you know, you look at, you look at something like Ramstein's new show, right? I think there are, I think there are about a thousand people working on that show. Jesus. They've all got great jobs. How did, how did they all get into the industry? How did that band get to where they are? How did those jobs get created? And the answer is there were spaces for people to walk into to look at the lights and say, wow, I bet I could make those look good. I bet I could do that job. But if you don't see it, if you don't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. So these venues being in there, being in our communities creates aspiration. It creates economic activity. It creates literally tens of thousands of jobs in our industry. If you think about our music industry, which is 5.5 billion pound a year industry, just in the UK alone, let alone worldwide, how much of that is, is built on a base pyramid, the foundation stone, which is the activity in those grassroots music venues? And the answer is all of it. Yeah, It's all built from there. And, you know, some of the best times I've ever had in my life have been shoulder to shoulders, packed into some underground, sweaty dungeon, like three foot, you know, or, or sorry, 10 inches away from the lead singer of my new favorite band. You know, it, it's unforgettable experiences, man. And, you know, you, you, you could literally, you could stand half a mile away from the next Coldplay in a stadium if you want, watching him on a screen or the back of somebody else's camera, you know, or you can remember the time when you saw him five years ago, you know, literally able to reach out and touch the mic stand, you know, face to face with, you know, the next iconic new band. It's just, they they all come through that route. Every single last one of them. Nobody goes from playing in their bedroom to you know playing a stadium. Well, with possibly you know a few exceptions, but most decent bands and artists come through that route. And it's just it's fucking awesome. You know, it's uh, you you you've laid out the economics of it, which you know which always is is important. People like to hear that as well. But, you know, as a band coming up in that circuit, it's where we cut our teeth, it's where we got good, it's where we developed our craft, it's where we learned to be a live band rather than a, a good idea in a studio, you know, as where you build your fan base and that, that, that emotional connection between the audience and, and the band. And, and as a spectator, as an audience member, it, it doesn't get better than seeing a band up close, hot and sweaty, loud with a fucking warm beer in your hand, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and the best band you've never seen in your life, <laughs> two, two feet away from your face, you know? Exactly that. Yeah, I mean, they're all, you know, people are busy gearing up for the summer festivals, you know. Well, let's look at the headlines of those festivals. You look, anywhere you want to look, go look at the headlines of those festivals and I, and come back to me and I'll give you the names of the venues that those, those festival headlines, whoever they are, where they built their careers, every single one of them, without fail. Yeah. Liam, Liam Gallagher, you know, just headlined two, two shows at Nebworth. He played in my venue in front of 116 people. First, first Oasis tour, first mas- national tour they did for the first single. In fact, they, do you know what? They didn't even headline. <laughs> they, played, they, they, they were a double headliner with White Out, and on a particular night, they played in Tunbridge Wells Forum. They played, they played first. What was your venue then in Tunbridge Wells? Was it, was it the Forum? Yeah, it's the Tumbridge Wells Forum. Yeah. Oh, I played there back in 2015 in my old band, Kashira. Yeah, we played there on our last, uh, we, we came back from Europe doing a tour with Snot and we played there as one of our first UK dates, I think. There you go, you see. I mean, that's, um, that venue's now, it'll be 30 in, in 2023. Uh, myself and my partner down there, Jason, we, we founded that venue in an old toilet, as, as people are very fond of hearing, because <laughs> um, it actually was a toilet. It was built in 1932. Wow. Um, it's now a not-for-profit entity um, run by a community interest company. We, we're in the fortunate position, myself and Jason, that we own the building. Right. You know, but, but that's very unusual. Only 7% of the people in the UK that operate one of these buildings own the building. But that venue is really, t- you know, honestly, I, I can talk about it with a great deal of love and affection. And, and the people down there I talk about with a great deal of love and affection, even when I'm saying terrible things about them. Because, because it's a it's a magnet for every freak and weirdo yeah. and personal alternative <laughs> lifestyle within twenty miles radius. It's a great venue. You can, walk into that, 
You can walk into that building anytime you like, and you're going to see somebody wearing extraordinary shoes who wants to be a designer, somebody taking photographs who wants to be a photographer, somebody making a video who wants to be a videographer. It's just full of creative people making stuff happen. It's a, it's an absolute joy, those sort of venues, you know, just, just they're so inspirational and they just, they did, they produce so much. I can't understate it. Yeah. You know, Adele is a, is a billion dollar generating artist. Adele played Tambridge Wars Forum supporting Jack Peñate for the obligatory 50 pounds and performed for about 18 people at about 8.30. Jesus. You know, uh, you don't, you don't get to be Adele <laughs> headlining these massive events. Uh, you know, if you don't put in the work at the, at the beginning, if yeah. you don't know how an audience works, if you don't know how the dynamics of music works, that's how you, you can't be taught that in a classroom. You get taught no. it because somebody stares at you and tells you you're not doing it very well. Yeah. You do it better. Oh yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You have to support a band and, and you think, Hey, we're awesome. And then you, and then you, you see the other band, you're like, Holy shit, we got some work to do. <laughs> you get torn apart by an audience. Cause you know, in those venues, man, people, you know, people will let you know if you suck. <laughs> yeah. But probably slightly too much. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's, it's the best times, man. I mean, South Wales at the moment, unfortunately is seeing a, a dramatic shift towards the cover artist and, you know, and, and, you know, musicians got to earn money and stuff and i've done my fair share of that as well um but it's you know watching somebody sing you know somebody else's songs yeah you know it can be a good crack if you're you know you're getting drunk one night or whatever with your pals but i mean it's, it's it's a totally different experience going to see some original bands playing their own music like you say with that you've got that hub of all the different types of people that it attracts as well to, to those sorts of environments it's a totally different experience and i and i think like um many people who haven't been haven't who have haven't had a sort of like history in that world i really think are missing out and they would they would thoroughly enjoy it if there was a, a kind of resurgence of that sort of circuit again you know yeah i, I missing out is is the, the two key words you know i i, I i'm with you I, you know, I, I've lots of friends and colleagues who work in the festival industry, and I know that people really love it. It leaves me a little bit cold. Festivals, mm. and that's that's not to knock them. I know, I know how important they are, but you know, I, I just went and saw My Chemical Romance performing in Warrington, and they were great. You know, and and it was a fantastic crowd, lovely crowd. People really celebrating the fact that they were back. Yeah, and, and it was you know, it was really nice. It just wasn't for me. I'd like to see them in a 300 capacity room where, where the singer's sweat hits me in the face. <laughs> Dude, you just echoed exactly what I said last Saturday when I saw them in Cardiff. I watched them on the screen because I, I, you know, I, I couldn't see the band. It was so far away. You know, the sound was, you know, it was an outdoor gig. So the sound was ropey, you know, and the band were on fire, you know, but I mean, I was effectively just watching it on the telly and I, yeah, I'm totally with you. I would much rather see them in a smaller venue. You know, it's, it, it's just nothing like it, man. It's nothing like it. And I'm sure that most of the people listening to this don't need to be told that. I'm sure they probably 100% agree, but I think it's important to remind us what we stand to lose if we let this rot continue with these venues closing down correct yeah absolutely one to do Michael McGronitz would have, would have sounded much better in Fuel Rock Club <laughs> oh, dude that would have been fucking insane <laughs> yeah that needs to happen man uh, well, well Fuel is a perfect example of what we're talking about so so let, let's let's talk about solutions and I'm really keen to, to hear what you've got to say on this because what can a club like Fuel do to, to keep its doors open in the current climate? Um, well, external to us, we, we're constantly talking to government, talking to local authorities about how important these venues are, what role they play in getting people out, what role they play in talent development. And there are a number of things that government, local authorities, funding agencies, et cetera, can do um, to support these venues and the work they're doing. And that starts with recognising, frankly, that the work they're doing is important. You know, and, and I think that <clears throat> that has definitely changed in in the last five to six years. We started this charity in 2014. The first thing we had to do was was think of a better name for it because at that point everybody was calling them the toilet circuit yeah. or dive bars or, or you know, in, in Australia they call them sticky carpet venues, <laughs> uh, which I really like. And that's a great, very automatic piece. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, you know, but um so we originally, the first thing was to change the language. We came up with that phrase, grassroots music venues. That's been really heavily adopted now. You, yeah. you see people talking about that all the time. Yeah. That means that you can imagine 
somebody jumping up in parliament or in you know the local council and saying i'm concerned about grassroots music venues in a way you couldn't have imagined them saying that you know that was toilet circuit yeah um what can they do they could they could make the taxation regime whether it's rates or or vat or anything else that it is frankly they could make that more supportive of what the, of the work that this is doing they could recognize that this is research and development and tax it in the framework that we normally do that you know in the uk there are research and development tax incentives for every sector except culture right if you are investing in the development of nuclear weapons they will give you a 120% tax break wow so um, of the money you put in you can write off 120% of it against tax you, you actually get effectively the taxpayer gives you money to invest to research that Jeez. if you're researching the best new rock band then they tax you at 20% vat just on the ticket alone plus everything else mm. that doesn't make any sense you know we're we're that's a, a very important distinction because effectively what they're saying is hey this is a private enterprise so you're subject to the you know the, the usual rules of business but what you're saying is it's actually r&d effectively for the billions that then go on to be generated by the successful artists that that come through that route yeah, exactly that. You know, we actually we did one piece of work which puzzled most people, which we created a new unitary value, which was an Ed Sheeran. <laughs> what, what is the value of an Ed Sheeran? <laughs> I love in, it. In the UK economy and and how do you produce an Ed Sheeran? And and the answer is Ed Sheeran played three hundred and sixty six shows at grassroots level before he broke into the the point of the touring circuit, the kind of academy group venues where he started to make money. So the 366 shows were loss making to create an artist that now is headlining multiple stadiums around the world. Mm. You know, probably one of the biggest selling live music artists in the world. Of the 366 shows he played, 150 of those shows uh, took place in venues that are now closed down. Wow. So it, once you know that an insurance is worth X amount of money and X amount of economic activity, if you close 150 of those those opportunities for him for us to create an edge here then you've lost whatever the percentage that is over 30 percent of your chance to create an insurance if you create if you were creating one edge here in every three years you're now creating one every four and a half years right 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 you know so that's the sort of economic modeling that that government can understand mm. and hopefully the music industry can understand as well. Yeah. You know what I often ask people, you know, people say, well, you know, couldn't this be done more economically? Couldn't it be done? Blah, blah, blah. You know, could it be done more professionally? That's a, that's a lovely topic. And the answer is no, because there's no formula under which we create these new acts that are generally, you know, genuinely groundbreaking and new and innovative. It's it's the willingness of people to take risks with their venue, take risks with their art, take risks with their decision on ticket buying. There isn't a, if there was a formula. Nineteen sixty-five, John Lennon said, was asked, "What is it the Beatles have got that makes them so successful?" And he he replied, "I don't know, but if I did know, I'd create four new bands with that quality, and then I wouldn't have to I wouldn't have to be in the Beatles." <laughs> Which is which is a fantastic point, isn't yeah. it? If we knew what it was, absolutely precisely knew what it was, then people, uh, music would would, you know, we wouldn't have to spend all this time. We just go, okay, here's another arena headlining act that yeah. you're absolutely going to love. Yeah, but but actually, I mean, this is a personal viewpoint, isn't the viewpoint of my organisation? My personal viewpoint is. The more that we imagine people know what they want and we imagine that what we've got is what they want and we replicate that, the more bland and mainstream music becomes. Yes. You know, the more acts we sign who are a bit like Ed Sheeran and the more songs that we write with a team of writers and a computer that are aping stuff that's already successful, the less interesting music gets. Yeah. I, I literally want to go and I want to see see bob villain playing a 300 capacity room because i've never heard that before and maybe it won't get maybe it won't headline glastonbury and maybe it won't get a number one in the charts although it did pretty well but it is expanding the the cultural envelope of what it is that people are listening to yeah and that's why we need these spaces because in the music industry the major labels left to their own devices 
or are only interested in replicating the next big thing. You know, okay, hey, so this Ed Sheeran thing worked out. Let's let's just you know do another hundred of those and 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 you know take the money to the bank sort of thing. But that's that's the music industry operating at that level but down here on the grassroots that's why we need these safe spaces where people can take risks and you know and to to create the you know the next bob villain and the next nova twins you know that's why separate to the major music industry model we need down here on you know on planet earth where the rest of us you know are doing our thing and and, and honing our craft and creating our you know our, our melting pot of of the next the next big sound we need these we need we need the space where we can do that and I, and and the, and the these small local venues are are that melting pot. Right, great art in whatever format it is is intrinsically linked to failure. Yes, it's just, it's no, nobody nobody woke up uh, and and drew the Mona Lisa. That didn't happen. <laughs> you know that yeah, they yeah. they they drew a lot of very poorly drawn animals when they were kids first before yes. they learned. You know, it's just it's 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 inherently built on lack of success. Yeah, the great, great art and, and music, especially, you know, all of the bands that I've really got into in the last 30 years, you know, probably started making a terrible row, frankly. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and people didn't like them, you know, it took, Ed Sheeran, I, I, I saw his shows on his early career. He wasn't very good. You know, you might not like him now. I don't, I don't know. That's your personal preference. But he's very professional in what he does. Yeah. And he writes songs that people really connect with people. Was he doing that when he was 16, hauling his acoustic guitar around venues and popping up and playing cover versions? No, he wasn't. You know, it's just that he learned how to control an audience. He learned what was connecting with people by being out there and doing it. Yeah. And he's one of our most sustainable and resilient artists with the largest fan base because he put the work in. Well, I spoke about this with Tom Gray yesterday. We, we were talking about how for a small island, our, our ability for music is, is world-class, is second to none. You know, I, I said to Tom, I said, you know, we suck at many things, you know, cooking, weather. <laughs> you know? But I mean, when it comes to music, for a small little island, we, you know, we, are, you know, we, are, we are the world champions. Yeah, well, well, well above our weight. You know, the, the, the financial return to the treasury, the branding return, you can walk into you can walk into an isolated African village and show them a picture of the Beatles and they know that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I I think successive governments have frankly failed to understand that. You know, they do these they do these great big events. You know, we've just had the Jubilee weekend. I'm sure lots of people enjoyed it. Good on them. Was was it really representing what brand Britain is? to people around the world no. in a in a way that's progressive and and addressing the 21st century or was it that kind of slightly internal celebration of our past yeah yeah I, and I, I think people are into this scene and people are into the kind of music that you and me are into we're thinking about what am i going to like next week you know what am I? What am I going to like in five years' time? That's always in my mind. If somebody says to me, "There's this great new band," I try and go and see them. You know, that's that's that's, that's a theme of, and 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 that's a theme of the people who work in this sector. If you give them the, the infrastructure, if you give them the tools that they need, they will constantly choose to put on risky stuff that they don't know whether it's going to work or yeah. not because that's their exciting part. And you can take a risk as well. Like if you think, if someone tells you about this awesome new band, you know, you don't have to pay 120 bucks to sit at the stalls of a stadium. You can pay a tenner and go, go along and check it out. You know, and if, and if, if you don't like it, well then, hey, you had a tenner and a few beers out with your friends and saw some bands. You know, it's, it's not a big loss, you know, to take that risk at that level. Exactly. I, you know, and I think oh, the other things to say, I mean, honestly, as I say, nice freewheeling conversation that I actually really enjoyed, enjoyed talking to you because Let's let's talk about some other things. Everybody's really concerned about climate change and concerned about carbon neutral carbon neutral live music activity. Do you know what the main cause of of carbon impact is of live music audiences uh, of live music events? It's the audience travel to the venue. <laughs> really, that's the number one thing that's actually a big factor. Radiohead did a load of work on this when they were touring America about ten years ago, and the answer that came back very quickly was. Well, it's actually the audience traveling to your massive show that's contributing about two thirds of the carbon impact. Wow. Okay, so what have the what have these small venues got to offer that? 
you walk there. Mm. You know, you walk there. That's it. You can walk there. I mean, I think in our, in our statistics study we did about four or five years ago, about 72% of the audience had walked to their local venue. Walking's cheap. There's a cost of living crisis going on. Walk to your local venue, pay 10 quid to get in, see a brand new band, probably get a higher level of excitement out of that than you will by spending 120 quid to stand at the back of a great big arena that you, mm. you had to drive to. That is a, yeah, that's an amazing point to make. I'd never thought of that. Yeah. How did Coldplay eventually become a carbon neutral band? Buy electric vehicles and play 300 capacity venues. I don't think they're going to do that. No. But that is the genuine answer. Tell all the audience to walk to the venue. Make sure the venue is carbon neutral and get there in electric vehicles. That's how you'd make it carbon neutral. That is a mind-blowing point because that is a, you know, that is the central issue that the world, you know, it's, it's the number one issue that the, the world as a whole community is going to have to address whether we like it or not. And um, that's a fascinating aspect to that, which I'd never, I, I, it's the first I've heard of that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as, as you appreciate, we're quite a broad-ranging organization right. looking at all kinds of things. You know, we're, we're really interested in, in equality, diversity, and inclusion. You know, how do you build better festival lineups? You know, how do you build them that represent our communities as they actually are better? You know, like, this, this has been going on for some time. People are talking about female representation at, at, at festivals. Yeah. Festival bookers are much more responding to demand than they are able to lead demand. You know, you've got, if you're in charge of Reading and Leeds, which is a hell of a, hell of a job, hell of a festival to have to book for, how many risks can you take? You know, can you, can you really take an artist that doesn't have a history, you know, and put them headlining the festival because you want to, you want to have a, a, a festival that's diverse and inclusive. Really. It's quite a commercial, big commercial risk to take. And, and I, you know, I admire them for what they're trying to do, actually. They're, I think they're doing a great job. But I, you know what? You can do that with the lineup in these, in these venues. You yeah. can say, okay, you know, what does our local community look like? How do we represent that on stage? And, you know, in these venues, you can encourage people to form bands. That's another thing these venues do. You know, you can put on an artist that's encouraging young women to think, do you know what? I should be the drummer. Right. You know, and and then you've got a whole set of female drummers in your local community, and then you need to put them on the stage. That kind of ignition engine of the kind of change and progression that we want to see, that's it's so easy to achieve in our venues if we get the economic framework around them right to enable them to take risks. And at the moment, you know, running a thread all the way through what we've talked about, it isn't right. We've got, we've got private landlords and offshore accounts that are taking money out of these venues to, to pay themselves for owning the property. Why have we done that? Well, you know, what a, what a stupid thing to do. Theatres don't do that. Community centres don't do it. Museums and libraries don't do it. Why are we letting money hemorrhage out of our music community and out of our creative community and out of our local community, frankly, into the hands of property owners who've got absolutely no interest in what's happening in that building? Mm. Mark, this is this is fascinating. I mean, there, there, this is. I'm glad that this has gone in so many different directions because I, th- I think this is this has been far more broader reaching than I than I, I originally sort of sketched out this conversation to go. And uh, I, I apologize a little bit for my part in that because I get a little bit excited and I, I sort of cut you off and led you in a totally different direction, <laughs> which we could probably keep going down for the next two hours. But I think on the very important point that you were just on there, I'm going to try and loop back if we can before I cut you off. Um, you were talking about we were talking about solutions and i think that's really important to, to 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 sort of discuss that now if we can you were you were mentioning you were talking about you know the reg the uh, the regulations and the legal side of this and the case to be made you know to to the regulators um if we can pick back up there before i sort of rudely you know directed you elsewhere and get back to the solutions i think this is super important to round off with what we can do about this and then we can sort of um we can come on to then you know how people can get behind this and, and be involved and help so what are the solutions if we could lay the case out for that. Well, the, the, the Music Venture Trust is doing a lot of work with government. We're doing a lot of work with local authorities, um, supporting our work and following us on social media and amplifying our message. It helps us to do that work. We are winning. We've made changes to the planning law. The number of venues that were closing before the pandemic actually had bottomed out after, after nearly 20 years of consistent declines. Finally, in January 2020, 
I was able to stand up and say there were more venues trading in January 2020 than were in 2019. That was an amazing turnaround. And it was done because our community has been very, very vocal about how important these venues were. And then during the pandemic, with the Save Our Venues campaign, we 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 stormed that. I'm not, I don't mean us as a, as, a, as a charity. I mean the whole music community absolutely stormed that. We we were so vocal. We stood together. We really got government action underway. There were lots of things wrong with what was done. Not enough people got support. But in fact, we lost hardly any venues to that wow. epidemic, which is a phenomenal piece of work. Yeah. Everybody who who joined him in that campaign, we salute you. It was amazing. While we're doing that, while we're talking to government about what they should be doing, we have to get our own house in order. And the number one solution is we have to change this ownership model. Until we, as a music community, own our venues, we're always constantly going to be faced with people being kicked out, venues being closed down, venues being badly treated by local authorities, by developers, by whoever else it is, because they've got another agenda. These spaces are ours. We need to own them. And so to, to achieve that, we've just launched a, a new organization called Music Menu Properties. And everybody, literally everybody listening to this, can invest in that in that company and become a co-owner of initially nine music venues, which we're planning to buy with the investment. And eventually we want to we want to remove all of these venues from private in, uh, ownership and move them into what is effectively a national trust of music venues. That is genius. Spaces that are permanently in our communities, owned by our music communities, where people like you and me, we have an investment and a say in making sure that they remain as music venues. We don't run them day to day, but we can have some influence over the way that they develop and the way that they grow and the way that we ask them to represent our communities. Who's the best people to own music venues? Musicians audiences, yeah. people who work in the venues, artists, even record labels, you know, because why? Because they want there to be music venues and they will they will fight for them and they will defend them in a way that they're never going to be defended whilst commercial landlords. So we're asking everybody to please, please go to www.musicvenueproperties.com, read up on how you, you can become an investor. We know times are tight for a lot of people, but they're not for everybody. Some people have got money in savings. This is a great investment. It's got a 3% return on it. If you've got money in a building society, you'll know immediately. 3% right now is pretty good. So you put your money in. You're, you're not donating it. You're, you're, you're becoming an investor. You're becoming a co-owner of the UK's grassroots music venues. And you, your, your investment in that will last you a lifetime. It won't just reward you because you might get 3% back on the money you invest. It's going to reward you because your local music venue will still be there. That is a genius idea. I absolutely love that idea. It's sort of like a cooperatively owned music circuit. These are our venues and, and we own them. They can't be whipped away yeah. from us by some scurrilous kind of, you know, landlord at the drop of a dime. You know, I, I think that's a genius, absolutely genius idea. And it's, it's actually, it, it, it sort of enhances that feeling of um, community ownership as well, doesn't it? You know? And it takes away all of the economic risks that uh, you know we've been, we've been describing and the detrimental effects that has on the culture throughout this entire chat. It seems like such a simple, simple solution. I'm amazed that hasn't been thought of before. Yeah, I mean, well, just imagine the conversation. You're out with a bunch of mates. You haven't decided where to go for the evening. And then they say, well, where should we go? What are you going to say if you're a co-owner of a music venue? <laughs> Come to my place, yeah. <laughs> Come to my place. I, I want thousands of people, literally thousands of people in the UK, to be able to say, come to my place. You know, I'm the co-owner of this. I want them to walk up outside the building and say, I'm the co-owner of this building. Yeah. I've, I've got a stake in it. I, I care enough about it that I've taken a share in this. And I, I'm, I'm taking you here because I think that you should become a co-owner. I think you should invest in it as well. I think everybody that cares about music should have a small stake in, the, in that landscape of our venues and the infrastructure in which our music is created where it develops and where it happens i think that is an absolutely beautiful idea i love it and i'm keen to get involved myself so what what was the link again did you say uh, go to musicvenueproperties.com um or, or just search the hashtag own our venues and you'll see lots of activity directing you there um and then you can like i say read through we don't want anybody to invest any money they haven't got don't borrow yes. money yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
you know, but it's got quite a low level of early early um, investment. If you're under eight, uh, under 25, you can invest just a hundred pounds. If you're over 25, minimum investment is 200 pounds. You can honestly, it's um, I put some money in there because it's a better rate of interest than I was getting on some of my savings. You know, and it's 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 just sense. You know, it's it's it makes common sense. It's just like I want to protect it. What can I practically do to protect it? I can do that. I think it's absolutely a brilliant idea. I'm, I'm all in on that, man. It's the first thing. I, as soon as we finish up today, I'm going to go and check out that myself. <laughs> I, I feel like a, feel like a terrible salesman, but I, you know, I, I'm only selling it to you because I believe in it. I'm literally, I, I, I believe in this. I'm not benefiting you from it in any way. I'm not getting paid some amazing salary to tell you to do this. I just think this is the solution to the protecting the venues that we really, all of us in this music community, want to see survive from not just next month or next year, but for decades to come. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. No, I, I think it's an easy sell, to be honest. I think anyone that's listened to this is going to be sold on, on that idea. I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. Uh, the idea of sort of like decentralized, democratic, collective ownership fits very well with my left-wing ideals as well. So I, I'm, I'm all for that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Might, might be quite socialist for some people, but you know what? Actually, believe it or not, community ownership was in the Tory party manifesto. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it appeals to both the right and the left, depending on which way you want to spin it. You know, I mean, if you want to own some shit and invest in some shit, then, you know, you can take that right wing approach to it, get the right wingers on side. Or, you know, if you want to take the more anarcho-syndicalist, communistic kind of you know, hippie commune type of mentality as well, you know, we can get the left winger yeah. socialists on, on board as well. But, you know, it, 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 it ticks all the boxes, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> so talking about the Music Venue Trust then. What can people do to support the broader initiative outside of the, uh, the ownership aspect that we talked about in terms of the, the broader campaign for the regulations and you know, the general sort of um, ongoing health of, of the grassroots venue scene? What can people do to get involved and help the Music Venue Trust? Um, always just keep a tab on musicvenuetrust.com, which is our main website where we're announcing stuff. Um, it's great to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram, amplifying our messages when you see them. You know, we quite often have a little campaign about something. And if you can just use your voice to retweet or share or repost, um, we're not big on petitions um, because we know that government don't read them very much and they don't pay much attention to them. When you see something from us, it's more likely to be to actively get involved. So we quite often will ask people to write to their MPs about a specific issue. Um, we're very, very into direct action. We're a bunch of activists who came out of this circuit. Everybody that works for the trust is is basically driven by the same vision. Mm. Um, but we just love music and we want it to be that. If you feel like that, you can basically take 10 minutes of, of a week to, to write a letter to your MP, to put your voice to something that's happening locally or to get behind something nationally that we're doing. I think uh, one thing I've learned in this eight years of doing this work, people really underestimate how important their voice is. They don't express it loudly enough in the spaces in which it really does make a difference. And I particularly highlight writing to your local council to say how much you love your local music venue instead of writing to complain (laughs) is an incredibly effective thing to do. And writing to your local M- local MP and telling them how important your local music venue is to you is an incredibly effective thing to do. But sometimes it's great to use that around specific campaigns that we're doing. Right. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and you know, if I can chuck my own 10 cents in, just get out there and, and check out these venues, man. You know, like take a, take a, take a gamble one night. If you think, hey, let's pop to the, you know, the, the, the sports bar we normally go to with the cheap beer. Instead, spend £10 to go and see Cattle Smasher or something. It It's that a real band? That's, that, sounds, that sounds like my kind of band, Cattle Smasher. <laughs> if it isn't, it should be. And, you know, you, uh, you, you know you what? Can... Let's form a band, James. I'm, I'm right in. Cattle Smasher. Cattle Smasher. There we are. When we're doing a gig, you can all come and see us and it might turn out to just be the best fucking night of your life <laughs> do, you, do you know what I've actually I've even got a concept death metal only the lo- vocalist is a cow <laughs> you see that. you're not you, you're not going to get that at Slippery Joe's sports bar you know you're not going <laughs> to get that you're only going to get that in your local grassroots venue so you know if you want to see Cattle Smasher you know 
which is which is now going to happen it's now a thing then um this weekend when you go out just pop into your local fucking fuel or whatever or, or your local you know um tunbridge wells forum and take a gamble man just just get out there and and support these local venues you you, you could you could support it in all the ways that mark just outlined but you can also support it by showing up taking a gamble and trying something different taking a risk you know out, out with the three bands you watch you might absolutely fucking fall head in love head over heels in love with one of them and it may it may it may change your life and you may and you and as Mark said earlier, you might be showering in the sweat of the next fucking Coldplay or Muse or whoever, you know, whoever the, the next iconic band is going to be in the next 10 years. And you'll be able to look back and say, I saw them in Tunbridge Wells, you know, to like 18 people when they were getting paid 15 quid and it was fucking awesome. So get out there and do that. It's good for your soul. It's good for, this, it's good for the music scene and it supports the venues. And, uh, I, you know, you can thank me later. <laughs> Great, great salesman. Great salesman. <laughs> so, Mark, thank you so much for your time, man. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I feel like we could probably talk for hours, but I know that you're a busy man and I've got to let you go. But I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the chat. I really appreciate everything you're doing. And I know that everybody listening will as well. It's such important work that you're doing. And I know that you know, you've been a tireless campaigner for a long time now. So on behalf of all of the community, we salute you and we thank you for what you're doing. And uh, hopefully, you know, everybody listening to this now is going to get involved and amplify and put weight behind this. And we can, we can fix this scene thanks to the solutions that you've outlined and worked so hard for. So on behalf of all of us, thank you, man. We salute you. Lovely to speak to you, James. Really great conversation. Thank you, Mark. Speak to you soon. Take care, mate. Thank you, mate. There we go. Mark David, ladies and gentlemen, from the Music Venue Trust. How cool was that guy? I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, like we could have just gone for ages, I think. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you found it informative and interesting and inspiring. And I hope it's made you want to go and dig out wherever the uh, those tucked away little grassroots venues are that you haven't discovered yet in your hometown and support not only the local bands, but the local venues as well. I'm not going to rant now or ramble or elaborate or riff or anything. I don't think there's any need. I mean, Mark's already laid out the case across the board there for what needs to be done and why we got these problems. So on that note, I'm going to say adios and good night. And I shall see you next time before I give you one last nag to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't done it yet, like literally what is wrong with you? Just get on it. It's one click of a button. Just do it. And please Give me a rating, click the star button. Even if you give me one, I don't care. Just give me something, man. Uh, leave a review, put some comments down and share these things, you know, spread the word, man. I think like if you've got musician friends or like music fan friends, I think they're going to really enjoy this particular episode. So share it on your pages and, you know, let's get this out there. And I shall see you at the front row of the dog and whistle getting showered in the sweat of Cattle Smasher really soon. Until then, take care of yourselves. Love your loads. I'll see you next time. Adios.